This is Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. I'm Steve Schubert. Welcome to our podcast. Today we begin a new series at the table on the book of Genesis. We're starting at the very beginning with the story of creation and Adam and Eve. Here's Senior Pastor Michael Gallup. So as we come to Genesis 2, we're going to deal with that piece. What does it mean that we are created in the image and likeness of God? Chapter 1 gives us a bit of that. God gives a covenant, told promise, and charge to the uh, first people. In that text, we don't see it. Here we see an individual, the man who was placed in the garden, who later we'll know to be Adam, and uh, the creation of Eve as well. But in Genesis 1, it's just male and female, he made them according to his image and likeness. And so his general statement to humanity is uh, to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. We see that that dominion having, that generative nature of filling the earth and um, caring for it is core to this image. So in chapter 2, we begin to unpack it. We kind of, we take this macro story, this big story of the creation of the cosmos, we focus in squarely on the garden of Eden, what's happening in this specific place with these specific people. Chapter 2 kind of gets uh, not as much attention as 1 or 3. You know, 1's this big creation account, it's really interesting, we have all these questions about the age of the earth and those types of things, the evolution that, that uh, pique our, our interest, and then chapter 3 is about the fall, and so we have you know, a lot of interest there. What happened? What went wrong? What needs to be fixed? So a lot of times we kind of breeze over and um, we don't really pay a lot of attention to what's happening in chapter 2. But I think we do that to our detriment, and I hope that we can discover that today in our time studying it, that uh, while there's a lot of scene setting happening here, that our author is preparing us for what will happen in chapter 3, at the same time, the author is also giving us a ton of information that I think is essential to understanding the Scriptures. So, without further ado, and that was a bunch of ado I just did. Um, <laughs> let's look in chapter 2. So the author begins with this statement, um, and really chapters, again, just a side note about the nature of how our Bibles are put together. Chapters are at times arbitrary. They're, they're not original to the text. Um, the text were just, were, you know, can, comprehensive and singular. And so we've added these as kind of reference guides to help us find things. But sometimes it can throw us off, and we can see that these chapter divides create this kind of mental block in our mind. But when we read Genesis 1, I mean, it culminates in the seventh day, and that takes us into chapter 2. And so that's kind of an odd thing, but just to help you think through how these chapters, how this book's laid out, you know, the chapter headings don't always mean that much. And the reason why we know that this is kind of a good place to start uh, with a second um, story is this introduction. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So this is a statement that the author of Genesis will use over and over and over again. Not the full statement, but these are the generations of dot, dot, dot. This is something I think appears, uh, I don't have the exact number, but I think it appears seven times throughout the story of Genesis. And what's happening is we're transitioning from one story to another. We'll see this, the generations uh, of Adam, and that transitions us into the story of Noah. We'll see it from the sons of Noah, the generations of Noah. That'll transition us into the story of Abraham. 
and then we'll see generations there as well. And so this is a marker. It's supposed to be kind of a, a narrative device that goes, hey, we're starting something different here, but at the same time tying us back to creation, that this entire story still is continuous. It is one story. This story is still tied to the creative God. And what's interesting and peculiar about this generation heading is this is the generations of the heavens and the earth. This is the only time that the head of this generation, uh, this genealogy, is not a human being, but we're given the heavens and the earth. And that's a pretty interesting thing. I think it's, it's kind of weird to even think about that, like what, that the earth is regenerative. Yep, we know that's the case. Um, what's fascinating about this is what it does is it ties the nature of who we are as human beings to the heavens and the earth. And that's something that, that's, that's really brilliant, I think. Um, in Genesis 1, we get this idea that we are created in the image of God. And so there's a very exalted nature to our humanity. We're, uh, unlike anything else in creation, we're set apart, we're unique, we're special. Um, we are like God, but what Genesis 2 makes it very clear to us is that we are not God. That our ancestor, our heavenly, our, our, I should say our, our father and mother are the heavens and the earth. So even though it means something very different in this day, it's not that unchristian to talk about the mother earth. As we read in the Genesis 2 story, uh, we are both formed from the dust of the earth. So we see that part of us, this, this part of us that is still creaturely is still material, is still tied to the dirt. But then we come to life through God's breathing His Spirit into our nostrils, the presence of heaven. And so within us, within humanity at its best, at its finest, at its uh, most mature um, example, we see this perfect union of heaven and earth within us. That's our destiny. That's that's our purpose. That's part of who we are as image bearers. That within us, within our very makeup and being, is this combination of heaven and earth. And that's part of God's good order, His proper harmony and relationship between these different things, is that they would find congruence, they would find unity, and then find mutuality. And we see that in our creation. All right, so that's a lot, right? Generations. But it's setting us up for something very unique, is to look at the nature of our humanity. And so what we see here is a lot of details about the creation of the Garden of Eden. Um, Eden is a word in the Hebrew that means delight. So this is a place of delighting. Uh, I think that that was not unintentional. The people who would read this, this was kind of, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, like in modern literature, but... Uh, you ever, have you guys ever read or familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's text? Uh, it's kind of like hits you on the face with how overt like the metaphors are. Like the main character's name is Christian, and it's an allegory for like the Christian journey. And like th these places he goes are just named after like the experiences of our Christian journey. So for the Hebrew hearers, when they said God planted this garden in a place called delight, you know, it, it's, it's a big kind of hit you on the face metaphor. It's, not alluding, it's not hidden, it's not missing, but it's this big idea that this is the place of delight. And delighting in the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, it becomes one of the kind of the key um, uh, themes of the Torah. And we see this played out uh, in the books of Exodus and on, but also in the books of the Psalms. Delighting in the Lord. 
And I think that that is ultimately the, in, um, the, uh, the desire, the uh, impulse, the, the intention of God and His creation and His placement of us within the earth and in this garden is that we may find their delight. I just think that's wonderful. I mean, I think we sometimes lose sight of that, that we think that delight is something, um, this joy, this presence of the Lord is something outside of us, outside of our body, something overly spiritual. And yet we see in this narrative that it is uh, at first and squarely earthy, that delight is something we experience in the body, in this world, in this place, physically. That connection with God is not something out there, but it can be something that we exist within, within our world. Um, Adam, the man, is placed in the garden. And this is an interesting statement. Um, this, this idea of placement is, is kind of an idea of, of being set apart. Maybe you've heard that idea before. Um, the word holy has that same sort of idea of being set apart. Uh, that This was a unique placement. It was sort of a... Uh, if you think about jobs, like you were, it was like a job placement. He wasn't just put there. It wasn't just a location, but he was given a purpose. He was put there for a reason. And we begin to see what that reason is, that he was to uh, till and keep the ground, the garden. So this is a key statement. Um, what does it mean to have dominion? We're told that we're made in the image of God to have dominion over the earth. What does that look like? Dominion is this idea of kingliness. We're to reign over it. And we, we heard that echoed in Psalm 8 that we read earlier, uh, that God has given us glory and honor over the creation. But what does that look like? Uh, some have argued throughout the history of the church that, that we are, it's, it's a purely hierarchical kind of relationship to the soil. And that God has given us the creation to, uh, just to benefit us. That we're there to get what we can from it. Um, and at times that has led to some severe abuses. And yet this idea to till, and really the word there in its most simplest idea is serve. Uh, Hebrew word evid, again, just doesn't mean anything to anybody, but this Hebrew word evid means to serve. And it's a word that's used a lot in the Bible. It's the servant of the Lord is the evid of the Lord. Um, this idea that Adam is placed in the garden to serve it and then to keep or guard it. I think this is tremendous relationship that God has tasked us with in, in relation to creation. is to serve it and to guard it. And what's so fascinating is within that context, God also talks about how the garden will do those things for us. That it'll provide for us delight. That it'll provide for us nourishment, protection, shelter, life even. And you begin to see something really tremendous emerging here, which is this mutual relationship. Adam is placed in the garden to serve it and keep it and mutually the garden will serve him and keep him uh, this isn't a purely hierarchical although the man has dominion over the creation his job of dominion is to serve it protect it ensure its quality um, ensure its uh, longevity ensure its uh, continuation um, our job is to be caretakers givers gardens to cultivate the earth, not to abuse it, not to um, uh, exert our will, to, uh, consequences be damned. No, we are called to serve. 
this is a specifically kind of priestly role. This, this, this statement that Adam has given and he's placed in the garden. One, one of the themes that will emerge as you read through the Genesis account and then on is that what we see in Eden, the particularities of its makeup and the particularities of Adam's placement in there mirrors the tabernacle and later the temple. Uh, for instance, one thing that is not maybe abundantly clear when you read this text is that Eden is, is in a mountainous region. Um, it doesn't explicitly say it's on a mountain. But it's at the headwaters of these four major rivers. And where are headwaters? If you know your geography, headwaters are mountainous regions. Um, so, uh, and, and in Jewish tradition, they always just, Eden was on a mountain. And so there's this kind of physical symbolicness of that, where this mountain is this elevated place. So it's this place where heaven and earth kind of come together. But when you begin to think about the themes of scriptures and the role of mountains, uh, these are major mountains throughout the story, like Sinai. That's where the Ten Commandments are given. When the Israel's, Israelites are pulled out of their slavery in Egypt, they come to this Mount Sinai, and we see Moses on the mountaintop in the presence of God, conversing, listening to him in relationship. Moses serves as an intermediary to the people that aren't on the mountaintop. He comes down and speaks the word of God to him. Later, we see a mountain being very particularly important to the history of Israel, Israel with the placement of the temple on Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. It was this highest place in this high city, this place where heaven and earth connect. The temple was the place where the presence of God resided, and the priest worked within its deep inner sanctuary, the Holy of the Holies, before the presence of the Lord. They meditated His presence, um, and they meditated it to, mediated it to the people. Of course, we see in the story of Jesus, Mountains are important to him. He goes to the mountain often to be a solitary place to pray, where he, here he is, human being, on a mountaintop in the presence of the Lord. He would come back down as a mediator, telling us the word of the Lord, serving us in the spirit and the power of the Lord. Of course, the transfiguration. Jesus is on a mountaintop, and Moses and Elijah appear to him, and he's transformed in this glowing uh, glorious visage, and Peter falls down on the ground and wants to build temp, you know, uh, memorials to everyone that's there. I mean, it's this tremendous experience of Jesus and his fullness of glory, heaven and earth combined on the mountaintop. And of course, Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull. Jesus is killed on a mountain. And this, again, this place of desolation and kind of the inverse of all that we've seen where the mountains, this place where these place, uh, God and heaven are come together as one. Um, it looks like that's the opposite, that they're, they're kind of being ripped apart um, with Jesus' death. And yet we know the beautiful story that because of his death, Jesus has joined himself to us because death has become our lot, disorder. Uh, darkness is the nature of our humanity at this point, and Jesus joins himself, heaven, God, with us on the mountaintop. And when we get to Revelation 22, the culmination of the biblical narrative, we see the new Jerusalem descending down upon the earth, and it rests on a mountaintop, heaven and earth as one. Uh, the rivers that flow out of this, just as a side note, because it's always... I'm a geography guy, so I'm always really curious. Do we know where the Garden of Eden is? Well, the, the rivers that are listed are listed in descending order of familiarity. We, we have no idea what the river Pashan is or where it is. Like, 
It's, it's probably allegorical, we don't know, but as you go down the list, you're actually like, oh, these rivers make sense. The, the next river that Cush uh, was a word that they used for Africa, so we probably think it's representative of the Nile River, which is the big river of Africa. And then Tigris and Euphrates are still named that today, and form the land uh, in, uh, in Iraq, primarily. And so, in a sense, what the Jews would understand in reading this and understanding the location of these rivers was that Eden was in some place similar to, in proximity, to the promised land. So it wasn't some hidden place that we can't find anymore. It's like there's some secret location that we can't get to. Uh, It is symbolic for what the promised land is supposed to be. This place where heaven and earth find unity. Where God and humanity dwell together in relationship. That is what Eden is supposed to present to us, and it is our hope and our goal. We talked about the nature of um, serving the earth and keeping it. I talked about that that means for us particularly that we cultivate. So the hints of that cultivation, although it's given explicitly in the command, are seen in the nature of what's in the garden. It's really easy to kind of skip over these details, like when you're reading about the rivers, and it's just kind of like, what does that mean? I don't recognize these terms. And there's gold, and uh, I don't even remember the other. Uh, it's a weird thing. Uh, what is it? Bedillium. Y'all know what bedillium is? Some sort of like precious metal or jewel. And then onyx. I know onyx. It's nice. It's a you know jewel stone. And it's just kind of strange. Like, why would the author include this detail? I mean, for me, when I'm really reading this cautiously and I'm paying attention, it, it, it kind of jumps out to me, like, what's the point of the gold and the bedillium and the onyx? And they're just raw materials in the, uh, the earth here. Well, we're not given an answer immediately, but we keep these kind of curiosities in mind. And we, as we read a text as a whole, not just in these individual pieces, these precious stones that are uncultivated just in the earth reoccur. When we come to the construction of the tabernacle, which was the temple uh, in Mobile, gold, bedillium, and onyx are specifically named to be carved and harnessed as decorations, um, construction pieces that will take place in the tabernacle. Later we'll see these same things in the temple. And then when we get again to the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22, the streets are paved with gold. The onyx and other jewels that aren't named here align the walls of the city. And so we see this movement from raw materials in the earth to cultivated um, reality and beauty. A city that not only God is inspiring and cooperating with, but that we have a hand in making as well. And so I think we begin to see there the nature of our image. This nature of how we cultivate, how we have dominion. We do it in partnership. We do it in cooperation with God. We're made in His image, and so we, we work like Him. We serve like Him. We're to care for the creation that He made like Him, but not only like Him, but with Him. You see, God starts the work of the garden. He's the one that actually plants it, and He passes the baton on to the man to keep it and to serve it. And then finally, the, the piece of this priestliness comes to a head Um, It says, God uh, took the man and put him in the garden. And the Lord commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree in the garden, but tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. 
we're given our first command. Um, we're having a, there's a charge uh, uh, for humanity in um, Genesis 1, but this is given to us in the same nature, same sort of vocabulary and cadence of the Ten Commandments, um, the commandments that compromise, not compromise, comprise the law. Uh, you shall not do X. If you do, X will happen. There's kind of consequences, these if-then statements. And particularly, there's a choice laid before the man. Do this and you shall live. You do this and you shall die. This choice of life and death is put before him. And that is a major theme in the dispensation of the law. Live this way and it will be for you a blessing and for life. Live this way and it will be for you a cursing and death. Choice is laid out before us. So Adam is given this kind of priestly role. He's placed on the mountaintop in the presence of the Lord to worship Him, to serve Him and honor Him, and to live that out by serving and caring for the creation and by keeping the commandments. Earlier I said that the Garden of Eden, the title is, uh, of Eden means delight. And a common theme throughout the Torah, throughout all these commandments is when we follow the commandments of the Lord, is, uh, it is our way of uh, participating in the delight of the Lord. That commandment keeping and delighting really are hand in hand. I think a lot of people philosophically come to this place and, and they have problems or questions. Well, why is this tree there? Like, why, why did God even do this, right? If God's all-powerful and all-knowing, like, why would he put this tree of knowledge of good and evil? What does it even mean? Why is that the thing that causes the fall? And there's no easy answer. I don't, we scholars and Christians have disagreed about the nature of this throughout history. So what I say here today, take with a grain of salt. Um, but I do believe what you see here is that part of the nature of us bearing the image of God is that God is a free creature. And so are we. Love requires freedom. Love cannot be compelled, cannot be uh, um, uh, assumed. And so I think before Adam is a choice. He gets to exercise his freedom. Yet God in his great love and his great wisdom knows that um, he's willing to give us this great right of freedom, even if it may hurt us. But knowing that in the long run, he will make provisions and ways for us to have salvation. It's not an easy answer. I'm not really sure that really gets at the heart of it. But I do think what it shows us clearly is part of our intrinsic nature as humans is we have choice. Um, uh, that, you know, that doesn't answer the whole like free will, sovereignty question. There's a whole lot more to that, and the nature of the fall plays into that. But fundamentally, core to what it means to be full humans before the fall is that we are free beings. And I do think that part of our redemption and part of uh, us living into the fullness of the image of God is that we will begin to um, regain our capacity for freedom. And I believe, uh, and I think the Scriptures show us, that in Christ will freely choose good, freely choose good forever. That, that is becoming our ultimate destiny. That is, and that's kind of massively um, exciting for me because, you know, you read Paul in Romans 6, and he's, he's a mess. He's dealing with the nature of his will that's kind of still bound to sin. He's like, the things I want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And he's just, what a wretched creature I am. Who can save me from this? And of course, the answer is Christ. 
what we see in Christ is a new Adam, is a new man who before him the choice of life and death was put before him. And he always freely chose the good. What we see in Christ is our destiny and our hope. Because he has done that, we now have the capacity to begin to enter into that reality more and more and more. And then this narrative just takes a big shift, um, big red light. All of a sudden it says, then God said, it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. Now remember in Genesis 3, this was one of the core kind of narrative components. Seven times over, which is the number of perfection, God says that it is good. It is good. It is good. And that seventh time he says, it is very good indeed. God has made a very good creation. We as human beings made in the image of God, is, that's a very good thing. Yet God looks before the fall, before the consequences of sin begin to enter into our lives, and he says something's not good. And so that is to just draw our attention in. What? Wait, I thought it was good. I thought it was very good. What, why are, you know, it's, it's supposed to shift us. It's supposed to introduce conflict. It's supposed to draw our attention in to us. That all of the scene setting that we just did, and I know I just gave you a ton of info. So, thank you. Good job hanging in there. You know, we talked about bedillium and covenant and all kinds of stuff. But all of that is setting the scene for this climax of the story. So this is what the nature of humanity is like. This is this place that he put us. But there's something still missing. It's not good that the man should be alone. If you remember last week, we talked about the distinctive difference in the creation of humanity in connection to the creation of the rest of the creatures. So when God creates the animals and the birds and the fish, it's according to its kind. And so they look like what they are. The fish is a fish. A, dir, a, a, dir, a deer is a deer. I don't know what a deer is. A dir is a dir. Um, <laughs> I don't know what. I think I was trying to say duck and deer, and it went dir. Um, anyway, a duck is a duck, and if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and distinctively different is that humanity is created according to the likeness and image of God. We're set apart. There's a distinction. There's a difference. To be created in the image of God means we are different from the rest of of creation and specific and for the first time we see that God creates something gendered he says male and female before ducks are ducks and deer are deer and fish are fish but here we see something uniquely different and for all the different things that you might think about that what is clear is that it's let us that we reflect the image of God by being in relationship God said let us make humankind in our image, male and female. To be like God is to be distinctively connected to one another. To be a descendant of heaven is to be in relationship. We make this even more clear here. It's not good that the man should be alone. I mean, I think that of all the things that we could pull out of chapter 2, and of all the insights that it gives us into the nature of our humanity in this world, this is the most uh, prevalent, most important, most poignant. It's not good to be alone. Who we are, image bearers. What does it mean to be a human? It means to be connected. Remember we said that the key to understanding what God is doing in creation is that he is ordering creation. Order is all about the relationship of different things. How do they connect? 
How do they interact with one another? And the order of God's creation is that we be in relationship with one another. And so we see the story of God making the animals and Adam is given the opportunity to name them. Again, we're beginning to see part of what this dominion, we see it in practice here. We see him emulating the nature of God by speaking and thus reality is shaped. He names these animals and so it is. That sounds a lot like God, right? Let there be and so it was. Nature and the image of God. And yet, as we saw before in chapter 1, they, they're just not the same. They're according to its kind. Nothing reflects back to Adam the image of God that is within him until the creation of the woman. Uh, interesting thing that's happening here, Adam is, gone, is put to sleep, and he's kind of returned to the state that he was in before God breathed his spirit into his, uh, his being. And he's kind of returned to the dust almost in a sense because he's, he he's on the ground and he's asleep. And, and so you, you have this image of before he was even created. And Eve, the, this woman, is taken out of his side. This, this sense of um, uh, reflection. Uh, not from, uh, you can read into this, but a lot of Jewish folks say there's a reason that she wasn't taken from the head or from, from the feet, or, but from the side, from the rib. This, this idea of mutuality. And... Adam sees her, and he says this beautiful statement. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. What a statement. And he says, finally, I see myself. Right? It says we looked at all the animals of the field, and there's none could be a partner, helper. But he says, you are the bone of my bones flesh of my flesh. I see in you me. And he makes a statement. Just like he named the animals, he names her and he says, woman. Uh, this is actually really cool. You know, I talk a lot about Hebrew. I like Hebrew. Um, but sometimes Hebrew to English, there's like this big divide and it doesn't, you, you miss a lot. This is actually a place where the Hebrew and the English kind of find some continuity. So in the Hebrew, the word for man, there's two words. Adama, so Adam is the word for man, but another one is the word called east. Uh, and so the word for man is east. And it says here, the east saw her, and he said, and he calls her woman, and the Hebrew word for woman is Esau. So he says, east, Esau. And, in human, and for us in English, it's man, woe man. And uh, Michaela and I were talking about this yesterday. It's like, I think it's such a cool thing. Adam is so overwhelmed by what he sees and is experiencing in this partner. And he goes, this is me plus ah. Or for us in English, this is me plus woe. It is just an unbelievable expression of awe and wonder and delight. We shift from it not being good to, man, it's so good. It's so good for the woman and the man to be together. And so we're given this statement that uh, we'll find more fullness as the scriptures unfold. And that therefore, man shall leave his father his mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one and again that great mystery what does it mean to be made in the image of God it's a relationship right but here we're shown what that relationship is like unbridled intimacy the man and his wife were both naked and they knew no shame now this term naked may make us blush or you know duck our eyes a little bit maybe not um 
But this is actually a different, there's two words for nakedness in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the one that we will read in chapter 3, when they realize that they're naked and they hide in their shame, is a different word. And it's a, a word of being like stripped bare. The sense of kind of a shameful exposure. Pushed out in, in, in a place of judgment. But here the word is this idea, and it's a deep metaphor, for there is nothing hidden. They're completely exposed, but not in a bad way, not in a way that's unwanted or unwarranted, but in a free expression. It's, it's not about the fact that they're not wearing clothes. It's the fact that nothing is hidden between the two of them. They see each other for who they are, all of them, not just their physical makeup, but deep within the recesses of their souls. They see each other. Remember, that's kind of key piece to this uh, God sees and it is good. Adam and Eve see each other. They see each other, and it's good. This unbridled, unfettered, pure intimacy. The two have become one. What a statement of mutuality, of connection, of deep, deep relationship. And I think that reflects the nature of God. We, we as Christians hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, and I think it's hinted at here in Genesis, although it's not explicit. Where God, who is all the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is one being. That in their deep intimacy, nothing is hidden. Nothing is held back. All is known. All is shared. And in that deep, deep love that is shared between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, one being is present. The love that they shared is almost more than the component parts. That's why the uh, evangelist John will tell us that, that God is love. It is His very nature. And his being. And we reflect, we bear the image and likeness of that being in relationship with each other. The two have become one. I mean, I, this is a clear theme that plays out throughout the rest of the scripture. Jesus tells us that the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all you've got. And he said, The second is like it love your neighbor as yourself. You hear those echoes of the man seeing the woman, seeing himself and the other and loving her as himself. We reflect the image and the nature of God. We reflect his love when we love each other. And so I would say that that is our destiny. That is who we are created and meant to be. Image bearers in relationship. And that's the picture that God gives us. And I think we see three primary relationships on display here. We see in this garden, this genealogy of the heavens and earth, we see an earth which is giving birth to humanity and describing its ideal environment in which there is harmony. Just a rightly ordered relationship between humanity and God within the primal human community between Adam and Eve and between human humanity and nature. Us and God, us and each other, and us and the earth. This is the image of God. This is God's desired, intended order of His creation, that we would be in this beautiful, intimate, harmonious relationship with God, with each other, and with the earth. Okay, that was a lot. So what? <laughs> Maybe, I, th I think that there's a ton of implications for this, right? Before we get to Genesis 3, 
which will show us the reality of the world we live in, which is those three relational centers in disorder. Uh, we begin to see the effect of the fall being that our relationship with God is fundamentally disordered, that our relationships with each other is fundamentally disordered, and our relationship with the earth is fundamentally disordered. And that's the reality of the world in which we currently occupy. But we begin to see in Jesus Christ the reordering, bringing us back to this ideal, harmonious, threefold relationship. So the question is, what does that mean for us? What is our responsibility in the world? What does it look like for us to be image bearers? And what does it look like to live in these harmonious relationships in these three different areas? I think what's interesting is, uh, and there's different schools of thought about the nature of what is this tree of knowledge of good and evil. I didn't quite get into it in depth. Um, and one that I, I, did, I adhere to, but I'm open because it's, again, these things aren't set in stone, is that it's a tree of judgment. I mean, you think about the knowledge of good and evil. What's good and what's bad? And at its core is it's a tree that gives us capacity to judge between good and evil, which was at this time God's sole right to hold. Like that, God was going to deal with that. Judgment, good and evil, that was his. And he was giving us, as Austin said, this kind of state of innocence. And so what's fascinating is they eat judgment. And by, by becoming judges, they also become judged. I think you, you see there a hint of what Jesus tells us, judge not lest ye be judged. It's that, in, you know, what my mama used to say, it's mama's day, right? You get point one finger at one, other people, you got three pointing back at you. And it's kind of cliche, but at the heart of it, there's some truth. Uh, that in our judgment of others, and in our judgment of good and evil, we find ourselves judged. I mean, it's, it's kind of a fascinating idea. Um, I do think that there's a mysterious beauty in that, in that the last state of humanity will be a state in which has experienced the lack of innocence, has experienced fall, has experienced darkness and despair, and yet has still come out victorious. Will still come out choosing good. Will make an actual choice between good and evil despite the, the, uh, all the problems and the effects of the fall. I think that, that that shows a strength of character that is tremendous. It shows that the image of God, the power of good within us, is stronger than the power of death beautiful. I think one thing to think about, and we've touched on a little bit just to help you in your process, is this is an ideal. And a lot of times in the scriptures we have ideals, and yet the reality is we live in an unideal world. And so sometimes it's really, we're kind of working towards an ideal maybe, or we're having to interpret the, the messiness of this world through that lens. I mean, I think one key example is violence. Um, self-defense and even to the extent of like this idea of war. Like if you think about World War II and here's Hitler and Nazi Germany is perpetuating tremendous evil all over, all over the world. And yet when you read this, the writings of, of Jesus' teachings, like it's pretty clear that nonviolence is the ideal. That the kingdom of heaven is a nonviolent kingdom. And yet we live in a non-ideal world. At what point do you make that place, that, that decision to maybe use force to protect others? Going against the ideals of Scripture, but to protect another ideal, which is to guard the neighbor, to, to protect the innocent and the oppressed, which is, was part of the case of what happened in that war. It, I mean, that's part of the, the, the difficulty of Christian ethics, is that we live, we're trying to live towards the ideal, but we live in an unideal world. Um, one thing that just jumps out at me is the nature of our relationship with creation. 
uh, the UN just this week, the United Nations just released a report uh, that said the health of our ecosystems is diminishing rapidly at a rate unlike ever seen in the history of humanity. Um, and there's a ton of info, feel free to look it up, but the kind of the headline that really came out was that over a million species, so an eighth, or there's eight million species on Earth, a million species are threatened with the real uh, reality of extinction um, if we stay at the current rate of ecosystem uh, uh, de, my words just got messed up. If we continue, over a million species are a threat with extinction within a couple of decades. And that's, that should be alarming. You read Genesis 1 and 2 and you see that our relationship with the creatures, although not the same as our relationship with each other, is still holy. It's still beautiful. It's still part of our God-created intention is that we would serve and guard the earth. Now, I said a lot of us just read, we read that Genesis 1 and we read dominion and we think, well, the earth is there for us to take advantage of. No, the earth is there to care for us, to give us delight, to provide for us, but it's a mutual relationship. We think about um, the ways in which these relationships break down one of the primary ways they break down is in violence. Violence is all about force. It's about threat and it's about fear. And it's the sense of, I don't take this. If I don't command this, whether it's from a person or the earth or whatever, then I won't have it and I'll lack. And I think a lot of our relationship to the earth is a violent one. There's fear of loss, fear of, um, of want. And so we perpetuate violence against the earth. And so I think that question for us as Christians is, you know, it, obviously this question, like so many others, often gets overly politicized and you find yourself in one camp or the other. But sometimes we, we, we're just so uh, um, staunch in our position that we won't, uh, we won't accept any blame or nor will we accept any responsibility for caring for our earth. And when you read Genesis 2, it's very clear that core to our human identity is care. Now, we can disagree about how we care, what's the proper means, but I think we cannot argue that care for the earth is something that's intrinsic to our human nature. I think that that's a clear example of the unideal world we live in, which is our desire to maybe right this relationship with creation may cause strife with our relationships with one another. And it's like, okay, well, what do you do there? Like we, if we want to, you know, preserve harmony with each other, but we also want to care for the earth, and these things almost seem at odds at times. There's not an easy answer. You're right. I think it's challenging. Um, I think key to uh, understanding ethics for us as Christians, and ethics is just how you deal with these issues. How do, how do you, you know, make a way forward? Um, to again look at these big overarching ideas and scriptures, but I, I think key and, and core is to look at Jesus. And I'm still fascinated by the smallness of his impact and, and while he was present on earth. Clearly, to this, we're 2,000 years later and over, you know, several billion Christians in the world, and, you know, it's, it's tremendous how far-reaching his impact is now. But while he was on earth, he lived in an area not much bigger, I mean, in his entire life, not much bigger than central Arkansas. And he mainly operated in just a few cities, really towns. He had this small group of people around him. And it, and it seemed like, it almost seemed counterintuitive to how we view 
our influence and impact in this day and age because of the, I would say, the temptations of social media and all that, that we can have this sort of global impact, that we can change the world. I'm not saying we can't, but maybe that change happens by being local. Um, again, that doesn't mean like you never think about the rest of the world or you don't travel to the rest of the world. No, we still have to live within the responsibilities of being a global society. But I think what you see in Jesus is, is a simplicity. Um, and I'm not trying to be oversimplistic. I don't think this just makes the answer clear by any means to what you're bringing up. Uh, but his way of dealing with um, people on a relational one-to-one, face-to-face level. I mean, his, when he's dealing with the Pharisees, these people that are criticizing him, it often happens in relationship. I mean, he's in Simon the Pharisee's home having a meal when he begins to confront him about his hypocrisy. There, there's, there's some uh, expression of relationship and mutuality and love for one another. Ultimately, Jesus just draw a line there and said, you know, we're gonna, you need to live by grace. You need to honor those who are dishonorable in this world, and you're not doing those things. Um, but he does that in this place of intimacy and connection. Um, I, think, I think that that's part of the, the, some of the problematic rhetoric in our world and the political divide is how depersonal it is. It happens on a screen, and we're arguing with another screen. And not to say anybody who uses social media is bad or wrong or not like Jesus. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying is maybe we need to rethink the actual like, efficiency and purpose and power of that medium. Um, I think in many ways it, it adds to the divide. Uh, it's, it's a lot harder to write somebody off, to block somebody or not, not follow or whatever, someone who you're in a relationship with, that you share meals with regularly. Um, in some ways, it's a lot harder to engage with that person also. Uh, but I think the nature of our call to care for the earth and each other and love God in that process necessitates that we at least try. I think a passage like this can actually be discouraging at times because as Austin said, it's like, look how innocent it was. And now, now we're talking about, and I don't even know, like, you know, it's clear that I need to do this good thing. And yet, on the path of doing this good thing, there are all these relational you know, minefields that I've got to traverse. And it's like, what do we do? How do we make it forward in this world? But I hope that we can also glean, well, hope from this passage. Remember, this is a continuation of Genesis 1. This isn't a, a new passage. And in Genesis 1, God creates everything out of nothing. The land was empty and void and covered with chaotic water Yet the Spirit of God came and descended upon it like a mothering bird and raised its brood out of, the, out of the nothingness. God began to fill what was empty, shine light in the darkness. That is the shape and the nature of who He is. That doesn't mean we just hang up our hats and let God handle it. No, we are called to participate with Him, to cooperate Him in His work of ordering this creation and our relationships for good and towards love. And yet we can hold on to the ultimacy that it is God who planted that garden. And it is God who let the light shine. And it is God who brings the order. And so no matter how dark it is, no matter how disordered our world and our existence may be, we can still hold on to that hope that it is never too far gone. And that is the hope of resurrection. Um, even if some of those million species are extinct. God forbid it. God forbid it. The hope of resurrection tells us that they're not gone. 
that death itself does not overcome life. But God, help us to be instruments of resurrection and life now. Let us protect this world from the forces of death and darkness. Let us bear the image and likeness of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you made us like you. I I know that despite um, so many experiences of relational brokenness, that God, I've also experienced the true intimacy that you speak about here. And maybe it's just been at moments and times in my life, um, but I've known it with you. I've known it with my family. I've known it with the people present here today. God, it is a delight. Thank you that the coming together of heaven and earth, the experience of Eden is not completely lost to us. But we can experience at time the harmony and the beauty of relationship right here, right now. God, may we pursue that with all that we have. May we protect that. May we serve it and keep it. Above all, God, may we stay rooted in the fact that you are faithful, that you love us, that you hold all of this in your hands. God, give us courage to live out the reality of this truth. Um, And God, give us grace to accept the places that are outside of our control. We love you and we praise you. And we offer these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. Setting the Table is available on iTunes and your favorite podcast apps. You can learn more about us at thetablelittlerock.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at thetablelr. And we'd love to have you join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at Red and Blue, Arkansas in downtown Little Rock. Our address is 1415 West 7th Street. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good.